eyewitness testimony within the Gospels is overwhelming. There is no doubt that the modern church in America has failed its people by not teaching them the earliest stages of church history. Thank you for tuning into Facts, a podcast that primarily focuses on the church fathers, the apocryphal works, the canon of scripture, the text of scripture, and the scripture itself. You can find more information about us on explorechristianity.net. Thank you again for tuning in. Thank you indeed. I am Stephen Boyce. I am your host going through a New Testament book today. We're going through kind of a random sequence of things. We had quite a bit of discussion between Ignatius, Irenaeus, the earliest bishops. And I I want to continue that because I want to hit first Clement and Polycarp as well. But in between, I've been doing side studies And I want to always go back to the New Testament canon in addition to that, because these other things like Ignatius, Irenaeus, they're there to supplement, to help us see the development and the understanding and the history of how the New Testament was formed the way that we have it in our canon today. And we're going to even mention some of these guys in today's program as we deal with the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians is typically not disputed about whether or not it belonged to Paul or not. It is typically listed in the so-called seven original, which I find is, is, is ironic. There's way more than seven just from the historical argument by itself. Uh, I know that there are new disputes, uh, disputes that go against other books of Paul, uh, especially the pastorals. And if you missed that, I did an entire uh, episode just on the pastoral epistles. Second uh, Thessalonians, Second Corinthians; these are disputed, believe it or not. Uh, Colossians is disputed. Ephesians is disputed, but they were never disputed by anybody at any point in history up until the last hundred years. And uh, the reason for it is the compositional layout and the syntax at times is different. And we're going to see a reason for that even today why Paul actually changed the way that he wrote. So when we look at 1 Corinthians, today's episode is, is 1 Corinthians actually 2 Corinthians? And we're going to get into that. We're going to get into why people would assume that it is. And then we're going to talk about, does that have any ramification from our understanding from apostolic writing as inspiration? Uh, If it was inspired, did God not preserve that one? Uh, And if there was more than one that Paul wrote that was not inspired and only a couple of them were inspired, then how do we deal with the subject of inspiration and preservation as it relates to the book of first Corinthians, second Corinthians, but the other lost writings that were written to them are not in Canon and cannot be found. Uh, There is a apocryphal works. Uh, There are pseudo-apocryphal works that are attributed to Paul. In fact, there's one that's listed to the Corinthians. Uh, But what we're going to see today, I think, is really important as we discuss the subject at hand and what the early church fathers saw as true Pauline letter and what Paul said about his own letters that made it authentic. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about the external evidence. We have early 
attestation of Paul being the author of this letter in the first century. First Clement, in his writing to, guess who, the Corinthians, uh, and, and again, we will get to First Clement, I promise. Uh, he's probably one of my favorite, especially most of my doctoral uh, thesis and dissertation was based on his writing because it was the biggest of any of those in that manuscript, Codex H, bigger than Ignatius. It was uh, obviously bigger than any of these uh, smaller epistles that were distributed out in early church history. So there was a lot of work to do from first Clement. And I, I placed Clement really in the 90s, um, probably in the mid, maybe late 90s, uh, AD, and he was a disciple of Peter. He was mentioned by Paul himself. Uh, Paul mentioned him in uh, Philippians, as the early church believed, and Peter ordained him as a bishop there uh, with the Roman church. But he writes in what we have called a 47th chapter of this section, in verses 1 through 3, he says, take into your hands the epistle of the blessed apostle Paul. What did he write unto you in the beginning of his gospel? Now notice he calls it epistle, but he also calls it a gospel proclamation. And then he quotes it. Of a truth, he warned you spiritually in a letter concerning himself and concerning Cephas, Peter, and Apollos, because even then there were factions among you. And so here's what Clement is doing. Clement is taking the argument that Paul had made to them about 40 years prior and says, take into your hand the epistle, pull out your copy of Paul's letter. Take into your hand the writing of Paul. Did he not write to you in a spiritual letter about breaking up into factions, into sections of, of, we like this guy, I like that guy. No, no, we like this guy better. When he dealt with the issue of himself, Peter, and Apollos, he's correcting their bad practice of having sectarian groups in the church on the basis of we like this guy, we like that guy better, and they're divided again. And he's saying, didn't Paul already address this to you? So when we deal with this, we see an early attestation of Paul's name attached to this letter in the words of 1 Corinthians 1. Papias being quoted uh, by Irenaeus and against heresies uh, in a section pretty much called the fragments of Papias, because we don't really have what he, he stated outside of the fragments that have been collected by some of the writers, particularly Eusebius, but here Irenaeus as well. He said, Papias, even as it is said by the apostle Paul, for he must reign till he hath put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that should be destroyed is death. Now he's quoting 1 Corinthians 15, 25. So Papias, also a first century father, into the second century, a disciple of John himself, claiming that Paul stated the words of 1 Corinthians 15, 25. Second Clement, which is not Clement himself, he was dead by the time this writing was around between 130, 160. 
But nonetheless, it's an early Christian writing. And in 2 Clement 14, 5, it states, No man has declared or told those things which the Lord has prepared for his elect, which seems to be alluding to 1 Corinthians 2, 9, which says, Things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, which has not ever entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him, being his elect. So it seems like 2 Clement is kind of given a summary or kind of just giving a uh, paraphrase of what is being stated by Paul in 1 Corinthians 2. In the epistle of Diognetus, which I did an entire program on, if you have not listened to that, I challenge you to go back. He states, the apostle perceiving the force of this conjunction and blaming that knowledge, which without true doctrine is admitted to influence life, declares knowledge puffs up, but love edifies which is a quote of first corinthians 8 1 knowledge puffs up and love builds up or edifies so we have another early attestation now he states the apostle he doesn't mention paul but he's clearly taking it back to an apostle i don't think there's any dispute that he was talking about paul there that was you know between 130 150 that letter to diagnetus then you have in the 170 to 190 mark the muratorian fragment and we've talked about that many, many a time on this program. And it states, as the epistles of Paul, they themselves make clear to those desiring to understand which ones they are and from what place or for what reason they were sent, which is true. All of them, I, uh, he states his name, he states the location or the person that he's writing to and the occasion for the writing. No doubt, Paul is very organized and is set up as a salutation and identifying himself, any people with him church the problems that they're dealing with the solutions it's very true first of all to the corinthians prohibiting their heretical schisms there's that division it's talking about chapter one it is necessary for us to discuss these one by one since the blessed apostle paul himself following the example of his predecessor which is kind of odd to me that he says this of john writes by name only to seven churches in the following sequences. And then he mentions the first one being the Corinthians. Now he'll mention later, there's a second letter of the Corinthians, which we'll get to when we hit second Corinthians. But he is stating clearly that Paul is the author and even quotes, even kind of an idea of what it was about the schisms, the separation between, Oh, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm a Cephas. The Muratorian fragment recognizing the same thing. Origen states, and if the meaning of the prophet's language here be clear, we may ascertain it from the apostle Paul, who speaks openly as thus, for Christ must reign until he puts his enemies under his feet. Again, another recognition of 1 Corinthians 15. Origen states it's from Paul himself. Before Origen, Irenaeus even affirms Paul. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, he states, Moreover, they affirm the Apostle Paul himself made mention of this cross. In the following words, the doctrine of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But to us who are saved, it is the power of God. So, Irenaeus, Origen, and I'll give you one more. There's many for 1 Corinthians. Hippolytus of Rome. I don't get to use him that much in this program, so I wanted to add him in. He was 2nd century into the 3rd century. He states, in this like manner, Paul also, in setting forth the truth that all things are delivered unto him, said, Christ, the firstfruits, 
afterwards, they that are Christ at his coming. Again, another 1 Corinthians 15 allusion. Hippolytus stating this was Paul's writing going to it. So from the first century to the earliest bishops, from Clement of Rome to Papias of Heriopolis to second century writings of second Clement, Epistle of Diognetus, Maritime Fragment, even church fathers and, and patristics. I mean, anywhere from Irenaeus, Origen, Hippolytus, all stating this is Paul. This is Paul. This is his writing, quoting sections of it as his writing. So let's get into the date. Trying to date this, there's a few years that we can range this from, based particularly on in Acts 15. It appears that Paul and his second, second missionary journey started the Church of Corinth around that 50 AD mark. Uh, and, and he seemed to be with Timothy when this was going on, which makes perfect sense. I mean, Timothy would have been instrumental. It, it, it corresponds with what's going on there in Acts. Uh, back in chapter one of 1 Corinthians, he states that he is writing <clears throat> uh, to the church at Corinth. And then he describes himself as having been with them in this letter. So that would take us at least to the 50 AD mark where he started the church there with Timothy. Now, a few years later, it seems like while he was in Ephesus, he probably wrote this letter to them, which would have been around 53 to 55. And I would probably place that earlier to, to the earlier part, about 53 to 54. But it could be an additional year there. I think if we take the writing of, of this letter in some of the discussion he has with them, correspond that with Acts 18 when he started this church, kind of the issues that would arise in such a time, and then his desire to continually go back to Corinth in his missionary journeys, when you'll see that in 2 Corinthians, it would appear to me he had made a couple of stops in Corinth, and this would have been in between the first and the second, so it would have been earlier on. And he's probably on his way back to them soon. It's difficult to say, but to me, there's a good two-year mark there that would make sense, maybe a third year, to write this letter, and that would have been around 50 uh, when he started it, and then that would have translated about 53 to 55 when he wrote it. Now, it's not likely that this is the first letter, and this is really what the program was titled. Is 1 Corinthians actually second? Because in chapter 5, he states to them um, that he had written to them before, at least it's insinuating that. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. Now, there's dispute about this because in this writing, he's insinuating that he had perhaps written before. Now, some would argue against this and say, no, he's talking about in this particular letter itself. And when you read John Chrysostom and some of the others, it appears that that's what they were believing, that he was alluding to what he just stated earlier in verses one through four. Now, there's others that did not believe that. Uh, St. Thomas, uh, Lyranus, I mean, even a pseudo-Ambrose commentary, which is about 4th century, states that Paul was already had written to them another letter. So this would be letter number two. Now, what's clear to me is that there has been correspondence between the church and Paul. They were apparently sending letters back and forth 
to discuss matters that would come up in the church, and they needed guidance and wisdom on how to deal with them. So it wouldn't surprise me just on this if there was another letter. To me, there was an initial letter that we do not have. And here's why I say that. He states in verse 9 of chapter 5, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, that's the way the ESV translates it. The idea is actually I wrote to you in a letter, in some kind of a letter. Now, that could still apply to 1 Corinthians, to be fair, but I don't think it does. Because not having company with fornicators or people who live sexually immoral lives had been addressed in this chapter, not prior, but in this chapter, he does address that. But he does not ever say the words, do not associate yourself with these people. Could someone argue that it is implied? Uh, yeah, I, I guess so. He does mention delivering these people over to the destruction of the flesh, which uh, to have their flesh undestroyed by Satan himself in verse five, maybe not associating with them is by delivering them to Satan. I guess maybe that could be implied there. Um, but that doesn't seem that, to be the case because in the same context, he's concluding, I wrote you in a letter not to do this kind of association. And it seems to be a separate issue from what he's currently dealing with. He's like, I'm already said to you not to do this. Now I'm saying a little bit further because now he's not saying just to not have company with them. He's telling them to expel them for this grievous act of sin. Particularly, there was a son-in-law having sexual relations with a stepmother uh, in the church. And Paul's saying, hey, a little leaven leavens a whole lump here. You got to get this guy out. He's unrepentive. Get him out. But then he says in verse 11, now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is a brother be a fornicator, covetous, a dollar, rail, or drunkard, sorcerer, such as not to even eat with them. See, now it seems like he's saying, now I'm writing to you additionally. Not so much from the same letter, but a second letter. So I think the pseudo Ambrose commentary and some of these other uh, church fathers and the history of our church who are stating, yeah, there was another letter. I happen to agree with them. I, I, I don't, and I've read John Chrysostom's view of it. It doesn't identify that there was not a first letter. It just states that he thinks the subject matter is still continuing from the earlier statement in chapter five, if you would. So I don't think using John Chrysostom as a definitive really helps because he doesn't explicitly dismiss a concept the way that, um, this commentary from a pseudo Ambrose writing affirms that there was another letter. So what does that mean? Like, let's just pause here for a minute. Like, so what does that mean? If there's another letter that Paul wrote, we don't have it. It's not preserved. What does that mean for inspiration preservation? Well, number one, just because a writing was sent from an apostle did not automatically canonize it as scripture or make it God-breathed, theanustas. That needs to be understood. The entire council of Jerusalem met to deal with the issue of circumcision, and collectively, as apostles and bishops, they made a decision about how to deal with the area of circumcision and eating meats offered to idols and not drained of blood. 
and they wrote letters and distributed to the churches affirming the decision they, the council of apostles and bishops, made concerning this matter. We don't have that letter. If there was an apostolic writing that ever existed, that was it. I mean, that was a whole council of them. But we don't have that letter either. Uh, John, or the John the Elder, and again, if you missed that, I did an entire program on 2nd and 3rd John. 3rd John states that he was writing, they had written to the churches, they had written to Diotrephes, and he rejected their letters. Um, does that make that letter not inspired to? I mean, it came from the apostolic group of jo the Johannine community. I mean, like, it's no less a letter to him as it was to Gaius or to Kyrios, the elect lady. I mean, why does that letter not count as inspiration? Well, you may say, well, that's because the Archfiends rejected it. So what? I mean, Jeremiah wrote a letter uh, to the king and had it cut up right in front of him and burned. Uh, you know, not, not in front of him, but it's in front of the messenger. I mean, like, just because it's rejected, does it make it not God-breathed? We've seen where God takes rejected and destroyed letters and had them recopied because they were God breathed. Uh, so I don't, I don't really think that's a reason to reject. Oh well, Dodgefries destroyed it, so it should, it wouldn't have been inspiration. Point of the matter is this: just because an apostle wrote or said something didn't make it infallible scripture. Peter was rebuked by Paul in Galatians. Uh, his hypocrisy was not inspiration. It was not God breathed. It was hypocrisy. It was it, it rightly correcting him. You know, there were times where writings and discussions of the apostles were not God breathed. They were apostolic or perhaps just error, like Peter in his hypocrisy. So just because a writing was given from an apostle did not automatically make it scripture. It may have been fine wisdom. It may have been good ethic. It may have been good doctrine, but there was something unique about first Corinthians. And we'll see later second Corinthians that sets itself apart from other writings. Let's just say there was another Corinthians. There was a first letter and Paul had, maybe just given a brief summary of what not to do on sexual immorality. And then he felt like that letter was incomplete because I think that's actually what's happening here in first Corinthians five is he's stating, I've written to you not to do this, but now I'm going to write an expansion of that. Let me give you a full blown theology on sexual immorality, marriage and divorce. Cause now he's going to build this whole statement, this whole treatise on the idea of sexuality, marriage, divorce, remarriage. He goes through a major, major section on dealing with the matter as a whole, not just one element. Perhaps the first writing to the Corinthians was just on the matter of sexually immoral people that were in the city of Corinth that had made themselves into the arena of the church. Now he's actually going to build upon that a whole theology of sexuality. And so this letter sets itself apart because it's explicit instruction, not just advice. And it's building statements where in this letter, he, ex he, he specifically states in 
the next section about it. The Lord commanded this to you. And I think that may be what sets this apart from whatever previous letter had been written, is this is a God-given ordinance. This is a God-given, inspired doctrine. I want you to know and believe and practice in Corinth to your churches. I think that's what's happening here is that the first letter was not a sufficient letter of doctrine and apostolic authority mixed in with the God commandments. This one is. And see, that's the thing about an inspired book, a theonustas, is if it's God-breathed, it's going to define the character of God and his wishes and his desires. And if God has a commandment of sexuality, then his character his, his display of himself will be present in those words and teachings. And that's what Paul does while building on the case of sexuality in chapter 7. He says, this is a commandment of the Lord, not from me. He's telling this is the wishes of Jesus himself. You see, now that becomes a nuanced approach that Paul believes he's instructing the church on behalf of Jesus himself. And that's exactly what an apostle was going to do. Because God revealed his word, his divine oracles in these last days through his son and his eyewitnesses and his apostles are bearing witness to those words. And Paul is making clear, I'm not writing this of my own thought. This is of the Lord himself writing on behalf of the Lord. That would set this apart from anything he had written prior even though we don't know what was in that letter, it's clear that he is stating that that letter did not explain this enough because it was just simply don't keep company of fornicators and people of sexual and moral behavior. Here, he expands on that in three whole chapters on how to, pro how to produce proper context for sexual behavior and what to do with people that don't practice that proper context he institutes the, the goal of marriage in its proper sanctity and how God in, it meant it to be. And when those parameters are broken, how to deal with it as a church, how to deal with it as individuals. And so now we have a full working, robust theology that he states in chapter seven is commanded of the Lord himself. Now in this letter, Paul believes he is writing on behalf of the Lord, as I stated in chapter 7, verse 10. And he was consciously aware of what he's doing in this letter. When he's writing, he's consciously aware that he's writing on behalf of the Spirit himself. He makes mention of this concept in chapter 2, verse 4. And he realizes that he's writing for specific intentional purposes. We see purpose statements in chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, chapter 4, verse 14, chapter 5, verse 11, chapter 9, verse 15, chapter 14, verse 37. is explicitly stating his purposes and his apostolic reasoning. Then he introduces himself over and over as an apostle and writing as an authority as an apostle. He had to defend his authority of this in chapter 9. But when invoking his apostolic authority, he appeals to it. He does it in chapter 1, verse 1, 7, 12, 7, 40, 
9 verses 1 through 27, the whole chapter. Paul believes himself to be speaking on behalf of the Lord, verse 10 of chapter 7. Now, I know there's somebody that's listening to this is going to jump in and say, well, Stephen, what about verse 12 of chapter of, of chapter 7? He says, this is not a commandment of the Lord. Like, I'm commanding this, not the Lord. <clears throat> yeah, it's a great question. It gets brought up quite a bit. Now, he is still giving apostolic advice under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Now, that needs to be noted because that's skipped often because he, he summarizes the whole section of sexuality in chapter 7. Going down to verse 40, it says, <clears throat> but she is happier if she so abides after my judgment. So he's saying, this is my opinion. Again, so going back to verse 12, he says, this is not a direct commandment of the Lord, but of me. This is my, this is my opinion. This is my judgment. And he's stating explicitly in this relationship that he is going to write this judgment with the perspective of, here it is, the spirit. Notice the last words. I also have the spirit of God on this. That's important to note. He's saying, I have the spirit of God when I'm giving you my perspective. So from the divine revelation of Jesus himself, Jesus apparently at some point had stated to Paul this about marriage. But in the area of verse 12, which he brings up in chapter seven, which is very important. He says, the rest I speak not to the Lord, not of the Lord. If any brother have a wife that believes not, she's pleased to dwell with him. Let him not put her away. He's saying, Jesus never explicitly told me what to do in a situation where a guy who's saved is married to a, a woman who's unsaved, then he reverses the order. And, and, and should they stay with them or not, if it's possible? But what he does say is, though I did not get a direct statement from Jesus on this, I have the spirit of God for this. So let's not read verse 12 without the end of the whole entire section of verse 40, where he's saying, the judgment I have perceived into this is of the spirit of God. So yes, it is not a direct statement that he learned from Jesus himself, but it is something that the Spirit of God gave him. Again, indicating that he is writing under the direction of the Spirit in this letter, recognizing his own authority as an apostle under the guidance of the Spirit in this writing, which would set this apart as a theonoustos, the Spirit of God moving Paul to instruct and to write in this manner. So let's talk about the composition. <clears throat> It could be argued that it is similar in the form of the Hellenistic letters, uh, such as, you know, the way he commends Timothy in chapter four and, and, and Stephanus and his companions, how he, he admonishes them and recommends them uh, early, <clears throat> at the very end in chapter 16. It is similar to the Hellenistic letter of admonition. And, and, and honestly, in many respects, in its entirety, it's similar to the moral epistles of Seneca. The Stoic philosopher, which which is the brother of the proconsul Gallio, who Paul met in Acts 18, kind of where they brought it up to the proconsul. Gallio uh, is sitting there like, all right, like you guys, this is your issue. Like, why are you bringing this to me? Kind of mentality when they brought the issue of Paul. He's like, this is your Jewish law stuff. Like, don't bring this junk to me. Uh, that was kind of his mentality. Now there, he was the brother. Uh, there was a Stoic philosopher, uh, the moral epistles of Seneca, the Stoic philosopher. He was the brother of Gallio. So it's possible that Paul was very familiar 
with the writings of this region when he was there in Corinth in Acts 18, and that he is actually utilizing the style of the writing because, you know, uh, this would have been around the same time. Uh, Seneca is, is doing the same kind of style writing to the Corinthians in these so-called moral epistles. There's 124 letters uh, that Seneca the Younger wrote at the end of his life, and that was during the reign of Domitian specifically. But clearly this, this style of writing was prominent in that region of Corinth. And perhaps Paul started writing to the Corinthians in a manner that they would have been familiar with. I want to talk about that for a second. This really does help us see the organic nature of the composition of a letter like this. If what, what he is doing is following kind of the Stoic philosopher writing, kind of putting together the rhetorical thought, then Paul was writing in a manner that his people, his audience could understand. Um, Paul was writing to people in a region that were familiar with this kind of composition. This means that Paul changed his style of composition of lettering and his descriptions of people based on the area of which he was writing. You see, this is the problem that I have with, well, these letters don't seem to be the same composition and syntax as these letters over here. And we've talked about the many possibilities as to why that may be the case, starting with the reality of number one. Uh, the difference of, of, of audience when it deals with a church versus an individual. Uh, if you missed that, go back. I talked about that very detailed when it comes to 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus as being compared to letters like 1st Corinthians is really not a good par comparison because one is a corporate letter and one is a personal letter. So I compared it to Philemon instead, and that made much more sense and statistically agreed with itself much more. So stop with the, it's different, it can't be Paul stuff. No, it, why is it different? Is the audience different? Is the location of the audience different? What was that audience used to reading? What kind of style are they familiar with? And Paul was educated so well that he had the ability uh, to do this in, in multiple places. Like, for example, in Titus 1, he starts quoting this poet, this, this poem of uh, this guy that they are familiar with on the island of Crete about their, their reputation as gluttons. And, and what is Paul doing? He's using framework language and writers of their day, and he's using it for his base arguments. He's using it as a, a reference point of familiarity to make a point. So it seems like Paul, in his intelligent wisdom, had the ability to write in the styles of the day of the audience into whom he was writing. And it makes perfect sense. What a way to do things. And we see that, that Paul does this rhetorical thought, even in this letter, and he does it in, the, in, in, in really six forms. And if you count the intro, the way he introduces the letter is similar to the Stoic. And then he ends it the same way that is Stoic. But in between it, he gives the rhetorical thought. He gives six of them. His first demonstration is the imagery that he builds of this house and family from chapters 118 to 421, that they are this house that has been made. There's no more a temple, but the spirit resides in them. They are the temple. 
Then second, Paul addresses a variety of issues of what we just dealt with, human sexuality, all the way from 5 to 740, which we just discussed. The third section is food and the way that it has been sanctified, but also what about the ones that have been offered to idols, causing people uh, internal trauma, if you would, from their backgrounds. Uh, so that's from chapter 8 all the way to chapter 11, verse 1. Then in the fourth rhetorical thought, he gives the statements of Christian appearance, how they should conduct and present themselves in church, the way they dress, the way they speak, the way they do things. Uh, this, this is all the way from the section of chapter 11, uh, all the way to the very end there of verse 34. Uh, but it also involved not just the appearance, but their conduct and how they took the Eucharist their abuse of it in chapter 12, verse 23 through 26. And then there's a fifth treatise, if you would, a rhetorical thought on spiritual gifts from chapter 12, verse one, all the way to chapter 14, verse 40. And then there was a sixth thing on the resurrection itself from chapter 15, uh, verses one through 58. And then he goes into his ending there. But the resurrection was essential. In fact, that's the section that a lot of the early patristics that we went over in the beginning of the program were quoting as a, as a purpose and a result of what they believed Paul was getting at because they were always defending the doctrine of the resurrection. And one of their first go-tos is 1 Corinthians 15. Now, within this, we find a framework that Paul organized this letter strategically and followed the style of the Corinthian people's familiarities, specifically with the Stoic writers. Paul dealing with these issues in a way that they could understand and relate with. This is part of Paul saying, I become all things to all men. And he talks about the to the Jews, I became a Jew, to the Greek, I became a Greek. I mean, he adopted not just the... Uh, ritual practices of the Jewish flavor of things and how like their dietary law. So when he was a Jew, he didn't eat certain meats. He didn't drink certain drink. He washed his hands a certain way. But when he was with the Greeks, he didn't do that anymore. He followed their procedures. He was trying to just win the culture by understanding the culture and relating to the culture in a way that they would understand. Obviously he didn't compromise his morals. Obviously he didn't compromise the gospel in doing it. He wrote explicitly that he would not, but in it came to the, these just styles, these, these uh, customs, he adopted the customs of his time and that would include his writings. And that's exactly what we see here. He did it with Titus. He did it here. He does it with his personal letters when he's writing to individuals. He follows the customary processes of the audience to whom he is addressing. And it makes perfect sense. Now, in this letter, we see that there are two carriers. And we'll kind of finish out the program on this. There's two carriers. The carrier of their letter and the carrier of his letter. Now let's go back earlier in the chat into the book into chapter one, and we'll see an individual named Chloe. He says, for it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them, which are of the household of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. So report. So Chloe has been this messenger that's coming back. And it seems to be that he says, you've, you've written to me asking questions. Well, where, who would have delivered this? Well, Chloe is a part of the church of Corinth. In fact, 
you'll find earlier when he deals with the issue of baptism that Chloe was amongst them in their midst. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, he deals with the writer, uh, excuse me, the carrier Chloe as being one that was a part of their church. He mentions baptisms of Crispus and Gaius and Stephanus. But then he talks about how there was a household of Chloe earlier before he gets into these names. They're telling me you're divided on this stuff. He's like, why are you divided on these people? You aren't baptized in my name. You aren't baptized in any of the, this isn't the gospel of Peter. This is the gospel of Jesus. And Peter is declaring that gospel. Like he's, he's frustrated with them, but Chloe is reporting these things to Paul. Seems like almost that he brought a letter with them too, based on what Paul says later about you wrote a letter to me asking these questions. So it appears there's a carrier and a representative on behalf of the church that met up with Paul. And then you get to the end of the book and you see these individuals <clears throat> brought up again. You see Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus in chapter 16, verse 17. He says, I'm glad of the coming. And then he mentions these individuals for that which was lacking on your part, they supplied. So they also came with Chloe, it appears like. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge them as are such. So he's telling them to acknowledge them back as if he's sending them back. All right. When they come to you, you need to acknowledge them in the way I'm telling you. Well, how could they do that without them coming back? Well, they're obviously coming back. So there seems to be deliverers of this letter. And again, you have a chain of custody. You have a representative from the church that they know and trust. You have a representative of the apostolic group that can also do the same thing. And it seems like Chloe brought a letter originally and perhaps these others with him. And Paul is now answering their questions and sending them back with this letter. So you have a chain of custody, you have a protection, you have a person of interest. So the letter, the carrier and the recipient all have a connection where some forgery isn't getting in here. So when we look at first Corinthians, this is what we evaluate as a whole. It is clearly Paul. He introduces himself as Paul. The style is Pauline in comparison to others. Again, not many people dispute this letter at all. Uh, Clement calls it Paul. Papias, Second Clement, Epistle. All of them call this Paul. There's no dispute as to who's behind it. It is spirit-based with even commandments of Jesus in it. Paul believed he was under the judgment of the spirit when he did this. He mentioned it in chapter 2. He mentioned it in chapter 7. This is clearly a spiritual letter and guidance of the spirit to give such a work, making it not only apostolic, but theonustos, inspired scripture. We've seen that it was compiled in a manner worthy that the Corinthians would have appreciated, similar to the Stoics of the time. And the rhetorical layout is that similar to, including how he introduces and ends the letter. He has a chain of custody in his carrier. He carries this through these right these these uh, letter bearers, those like Stephanus and Chloe and others, that there's this safety in transmitting these letters back and forth to each other. But we did learn that there's probably another letter. There appears to be another letter that was given from Paul to the church and the church responding back to it. But that letter was very simple. It was very basic, perhaps just a few statements. And it needed to be 
brought to a greater theology and understanding. And that's what Paul does here and states that he's doing it as a commandment of the Lord and under the judgment of the spirit, which sets it apart from this first letter. So there probably was another first Corinthians, but it was not under the judgment of the Holy spirit and the commissioning of Jesus himself that Paul had received of the Lord from what he states in comparison for this letter, making this a, a God breathe inspired apostolic writing. And we have as scripture. So that's first Corinthians and we will jump <clears throat> into second Corinthians soon. And there's a lot more argumentation against second Corinthians than first, but we need to understand the essential layout of what's happening here before we get there. Thank you for tuning in on your Monday or whatever day the Lord has brought this to your attention. Uh, again, thank you for the contribution of compliments that I continue to get both through email and <clears throat> messenger and on Facebook and other social media platforms. Continue to build this program. We need you to share it with others. And many of you have done that. I look every week at the audience and the nations that the Lord has brought this to. I cannot believe how many countries have people listening in on this program. It, it blew my mind to see. And two new, uh, Switzerland is now on the map that wasn't there before. Uh, the, the audience is growing every single week, it seems like, new followers. And, uh, and, and we appreciate that here at Explore Christianity because we believe the information in which we are discussing is greater than what you're hearing in these segments. We we do a lot more work and writing, and we we ask you to check that out and explore Christianity.net as the introduction had mentioned, and and see what we're doing, see what we're up to, because we are in a a crucial time in Christianity where Christians really need to know what they believe and why they believe it. We need to know the origin of things. So, again, thank you for being a faithful audience to come back and and listen to these programs and give your feedback. Keep it coming. I want your feedback, even if it's criticism. Even one guy complained I was too preachy in one. And then that's okay. At least I know where my audience stands. And I know he's not a believer and he's searching the truth. And, and I hope that uh, he'll come to a reality of truth. And, and, and the Lord will use these programs to do that. But I do always want to challenge the church. And I told him, so you got to understand, my, my goal is not just to convey some ideas that would sway an atheist. I am challenging God's people to think differently about history in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And that requires me doing some challenging and exhorting. And, uh, and, and some of you are like, yep, yeah, I know Stephen. that's how he does things. Uh, but thank you again for being a, a follower of this program. Continue to do so, continue to share, continue to listen as new programs come out. Grace and peace to you.